I think we pretty much covered 327. I wasn't sure whether there was anything left, but I, I feel satisfied. So now we'll go on to 328. Um, Samyama on the moon gives knowledge of the star's movements. And then Swami says, am I permitted to express skepticism regarding Patanjali's statement here? I see no connection between the moon and the movements of the stars. The moon is a reflective body. The stars are other suns. I think his knowledge must have come to him by another route. These commentaries are so short I'm reading them. For my guru said that the moon represents the mother aspect of God. The kind motherly quality the Divine Mother radiates to us through the moon has a softening effect on our emotions, unless indeed our own emotions are violent. In which case, you know, in uh, asylums, the full moon was always the worst time for the inmates. From the Divine Mother has come all creation, including stars, planets, and everything. Was it then through attunement with the mother aspect of God that Patanjali gained his understanding of the universe? This I can at least comprehend as a possibility. Swamiji is just so um, honest in the way he runs through it, isn't he? So from the son, from the father aspect, you get this certain wisdom. From the mother aspect, you get another. If you do samyama on the moon at night, you will attract into yourself an insight into the love aspect of God. You know, it's so... I um, last... Uh, well, two days ago on Sunday, I was talking about just having an experience of the bright sunlight, not the horizon light, and just feeling how magnetic the pull of that that is to us. And all of us, when we're wandering around at night and you happen to see the moon, it immediately has this... Um, well, I think mystical is the word. It has a mystical effect on you. One of the things that happened to me when I first moved to Ananda Village and lived outside in a tent, went at the beginning of the summer and lived for six months in a tent, um, a little bit longer than was comfortable to do so, um, was the relationship with the moon. Because I'd never been, a, I'd never lived in a rural area and I'd never really been a camper or anything like that. So I only had the, the vaguest kind of understanding of the moon from like elementary school science. But it was such a vividly different experience um, to live in a tent with no electricity and the only light was a kerosene light. And then actually just on an everyday basis and because there was no indoor plumbing, you were in and out a lot outside at night, which was having no indoor plumbing is really actually extremely good for your spirit because it takes you outside at times when you wouldn't be going outside. Really, I mean, it's, a, it's a very real benefit. You go out in the middle of the night in the snow, for example, which you just might not do otherwise. And even though you may resent it, the actual benefits of it are enormous because you're just out there. And um, we have uh, hurt ourselves so much, you know, just as, as, as living humans and being in harmony with the world by not having that uh, constant sort of casual connection with these forces that are really always trying to communicate with us. So much of what is really wrong with us in life is that we're so cut off from our world. I mean, just think how much um, divine and natural energy flows when you're in those natural relationships. And we have 
almost none of it. Now, as devotees, um, we compensate for it. But just a lot of the problems of our world are all based on things like that. Certainly for the 15 years, 16 years that I lived in that environment, and for the first 10, I lived very primitively. And so therefore I was really in very close relationship with the natural world because the structure that I lived in, it wasn't canvas, but it was still very thin. You know, it just, it just there was a very thin wall between myself and the outside world because my structures were so flimsy. Uh, for the last five years, we lived in a wonderful little house with a beautiful vista and we were still in the forest, but it, it was substantial. So when we were inside of it, we were definitely inside. Whereas when I'd lived in my trailer and, and things like that, we, you were always a little outside, even inside. But um, having an understanding of the fact that the sun can give us the energy of the, uh, the male principle of the divine, the father principle, the moon can give us the divine mother, we can actually use that a lot. Um, both by deliberately going outside and consciously communing, but also when we ourselves are feeling, as we so often feel, a little bereft, a little dry, a little confused. And even if we're not making an everyday habit of looking at the sun on the horizon, um, if we find ourselves um, unclear about what we're trying to do with our lives or sort of losing our way to make a point of that sunrise and sunset just to use that as a way to, uh, like a fire ceremony, like we use a fire ceremony or any other ritual, to ask those forces to come into us. You know, we're not so aligned with those forces anymore. Actually, Swamiji said something very interesting um, in the notes that I'm reading. He was talking about a man, a highly educated, very successful man. He might have been British, but that's irrelevant. And he was, had, had a change of heart, and now he was wanting to live in the country. He, he was going back to the land. This was somewhere in the 70s, I think. Very nice man. But he was you know, buying this big piece of land and all these plans and he was a very um, um, literary person. He wasn't a, a, a gardener by nature. And Swamiji was trying to communicate to him, as he put it, he said, people like us, he said, can only get so much just from living in the natural world. He said, unless their American Indian incarnations are really close to the surface. It was an interesting way to put it. He said, we, we, it helps us, we get harmonious, it's good, but we, we, we're not constituted um, in our samskars, in our vibrations anymore, to be able to get that much from the land. And he was urging him to think in terms, as he put it, of people and projects in addition to the land. Because that's essentially how we, Ananda, has gone back to the rural world, is that we went back to the rural world at Ananda Village, but it was people and projects too so that we were able to work with all of that. Here, we're so far divorced, we have to make a real conscious effort. But it's worth doing, because it's a, I want to use the word, it's a freebie. You know, it's just right there, even just a little bit. And I, I love also the, just the, the simple way that the yogic teachings just talk about this um, motherly, this kind motherly quality of the Divine Mother. And one of, one of Master's very specific missions in coming to the West, you can make a list of it, 
But God as Divine Mother was a very important one of them. And at various times, Swami has emphasized it more. I mean, he's, he's taken it as a cause. Um, it's sort of like, I think it's one of those things that's just going to have to occur naturally to people's consciousness. It can't be imposed because that, re- that relationship with God, that feeling of God in that form, it has to spring from your heart. You, you have to, to be in a relationship with the sense of the divine as kindly and motherly. Um, but what I think Master's laying the groundwork for is for when that, when that consciousness begins to bubble up. And it's, I was talking last week about vegetarianism and health foods and just sort of bubbling up over time. I think this is one of those. We get, we're getting more and more tired of this, especially with this fanaticism and extremism that we see in the world where God becomes meaner and meaner. And even the polarization um, of society that's happening right now with these fanatics, these uh, war, warring fanatics, is it's actually even it's a, it's an anti-woman movement. So it's sort of like everything that's the opposite of what Master's trying to bring. But sometimes that's how changes really happen. Things get pushed so far that there is a reaction to it because you see where it would go and you really realize that you don't want to have anything to do with that. And so even though this, uh, the present movement seems antithetical to Master's movement in favor of Divine Mother, I think in the great cosmic scheme of things, it's how the whole thing is going to play itself out. I, I was speaking of education last week. I mean, the extreme, um, complete losing touch with what it is to, to develop a whole person will just get pushed farther and farther and then we'll be able to come back to it. Just like, you know, fast foods and junk foods and empty calories and the resulting obesity and all of that is causing people to move in a different direction. It's, uh, it's not a very advanced age. There's just nothing we can do about it. It's such a drag. <laughs> I, um, I also have something here. I just, I've noted it right here, so I'll, I'll share it with you here. Um, Purushottam is writing another book. And this book is essentially, he's trying to unite science and religion, which has been in- interest of his. And because I'm, I find, I've been finding it very interesting, he's just in the early stages. But trying to talk about places where science and religion come together... He talked about Annie Besant and C.W. Leadbeater, who were prominent members of the Theosophical Society from 1895 to 1933. I think they were essentially the leaders of it, if not the founders. During that time, they conducted, by means of deep meditation, investigations into the nature of atoms. They systematically observed many different types of atoms, from gases to metals, in meditation. Once out of meditation, they described and drew hundreds of diagrams of what they observed. You can imagine how the notion of the psychic investigation of atoms was received by the particle physicist community in the 1920s. (laughs) However, many years after the passing of Besant and Leadbeater, physicist Stephen M. Phillips studied their journals. He was struck by a recurring detail that appeared in many of their diagrams, they drew three dark areas in each proton and neutron of the nucleus. Today, scientists believe that all protons and neutrons are made up of three quarks. 
But this was not the view of science during the lifetimes of Besant and Ledbetter. Phillips concluded that this recurring depiction, and from other details in their journeys, journals, that Besant and Ledbetter had accurately described the number and nature of quarks years ahead of their discovery by modern physics. Um, Dr. Phillips published his book and his studies in a 1980s book called Extra, Extrasensory Perception of Quarks. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I was just reading in here and thinking about how, well, there it is. They just sat down and decided to understand internally. And you know, uh, many of the ancient scriptures describe um, in, in serious, unrefutable detail scientific facts that were not discovered until much later because of experiments exactly like this. You know, Samyama on the moon gives you knowledge of all of these realities. Okay, number 329. Um, Samyama on the pole star gives knowledge of the star's movements. Again, we find Patanjali counseling us to go to the center of things to understand anything related to them. The movement of sun, moon, and planets around our zodiac depends on the position of the pole star, which is determined by the tilt of our earth. Ancient Indians were much more concerned with the effect of astrological forces on our lives than with the positioning of billions of stars throughout our galaxy. Their interest in nature was profound, but it was directed primarily toward nature's interactions with man. And I think this is also a, an important understanding of what, of why it would matter. Why it would matter to understand the positions of the stars and how the whole solar system would work is because of the yogic perception of the unity between the chakras and the astrological signs. Each of the chakras having a relationship to a certain planet, to, to, to planets, to signs in the zodiac, and the moment we're born being the external picture of the internal reality. So what the sages were trying to do was not just to be able to describe how all these things happen, but to take that information and use it. To use it in our lives to be predictive, to understand what our karma is, to see what direction we ought to go in our life in order to resolve that karma, to anticipate karmic conditions, to know ideal times, to try to accomplish things when, okay, if you're living in harmony with the natural world, see, we're living in such disharmony with the natural world, astrology is just one tiny thing. The science itself has fallen into some disrepute because the inner reality of it has been so much lost. But we don't think about whether or not this is an auspicious time to do something. It just doesn't cross our minds. We're just so living our lives in complete independence from the world around us. But how wise is that? Not very. And when we do study the world around us, just as Swami said, we just study it for its own sake. Swamiji himself, he said, at a certain stage in his life, was fascinated by astronomy. And he, you know, he, he just, it, it expanded his um, consciousness to contemplate that reality. But he talks about first that he was making that telescope that he worked on for six months and then the lens broke and that disheartened him. But the second thing was he was already losing interest because he began to think, what difference does it make? And he couldn't understand what difference it would make 
in the quality of his own consciousness to have all this information. And this is what is the scourge of our age and is what is causing children to behave so badly. I mean, so randomly and so wildly and sometimes so tragically is because we have become so infatuated with information and we are very systematically and carefully making sure that none of that information has any meaning. And, and it's, you know, it's against the rules to try to make meaning out of it. So we have big fights about you know, intelligent design and all of these different things, um, which is just so confusing. In Education for Life, Swamiji also tries to explain that va- to have values are not dogma and that there are un- universal values that don't belong to any, that we can all agree upon, that are not the property of any religion. There's no such thing as Christian love or Christian charity. There is simply love or charity. And some Christians manifest it and some don't. But it's, they don't manifest a different kind of love than a Jew would or a Muslim. But just that um, obsession with information without meaning it makes the children, because children have a way of being smarter sometimes than we do. What is the point? I, what was I reading? Let me just try to remember this now. Oh, yeah. It was a very small article, which I loved. It was called... It was written by the former admissions director for an Ivy League college who said... The article was called, Dear Parents, There's Nothing You Can Do to Get Your Child Into Harvard. Give It Up. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just saying, you know, it's just, give it up. It's not going to happen. You know, the 5% of the applications get in and your child's not going to be one of them. Give it up. But he was also saying, and then he was quoting some children there, children, he said, in our obsession with grades and test scores, we have, we have lost every other value. And he was quoting some children who said, basically, you know, no one ever cares whether I am a well-rounded, happy, kind, compassionate person. All that I ever hear in my whole education has been my grades and my test scores. And, you know, this man says, what are we doing? What are we doing to our children? This is the only value that we're giving them. So he talks about here about how the sages, what they really wanted to know is they wanted to know what that means from the point of view of my consciousness. And, you know, that's, that's why I dropped out of college after one year, flunked out of college, actually, in one year, was because I really wanted to know what it meant to me, and they just wanted to tell me what it was. I was just looking at them like, what will, how will this help me? I was just in the wrong place. Okay. Expanding consciousness, that's the whole point. We just, you know, I, those of us who understand this just need to very loyally and steadily, unfailingly, in all circumstances... Just hang out here. Just stay in this reality and don't give it up. Any comments or questions? Okay, number 330. Samyama on the navel plexus gives knowledge of the body's constitution. So contemplating your navel actually has a positive benefit. Here again, do we find a counsel to go to the center of things? To test the validity of what Patanjali wrote is beyond my capability, Swami says. But I see here the same principle being applied. And then he says, 331, Samyama on the pit of the throat brings cessation of hunger and thirst. This seemed to me like a very good hard times technique. We should keep this written somewhere. 
It seems simple enough to try this experiment, Swami says. <laughs> then on 3.32, Samyama on the Kurma Nadi, a subtle tortoise-shaped tube below the throat, results in motionlessness in the meditative posture. Patanjali is giving us several samyamas that we can try for ourselves to see whether and how well they work. The reference to kormanadi must signify the thyroid gland, the word thyroid being derived from the Greek word for shield, not so different from the shape of a tortoise. Samyama on the thyroid would help to regulate the whole body. Um, Master Swamiji speculated, and he thought this was true, that much of what we think of as Ayurveda today is really just Ayurveda having been filtered through Kali Yuga. That true Ayurveda was just an infinitely more subtle science in which these kinds of insights were applied to the body on a very high level because Ayurveda used to have the, I mean, had the, it is described in the ancient text as having the, the possibility of just completely regenerating the body. It wasn't just a question of making it feel better. It could essentially keep it perpetually youthful and, and always in optimum shape. So there had to be something more involved than this. You know, the yogis just had so much more knowledge. Swamiji says something here, the whole description of, of tortoise shield and all of that. Swami wrote elsewhere, he said that we think the ancient scriptures are obscure, but they weren't obscure at all. It's just the way language has changed and the way people's capacity to understand has changed as the energy has fallen. He said that sages wrote perfectly clearly. It's just that we've lost the capacity to understand. And some of it is the change of words, but it's also our ability to understand. Um, did I talk about uh, Swami Purushottamananda and having his brain tested by the university people? I was, couldn't remember that. Um, there was a, this great yogi, Swami Purushottamananda, uh, and he lived at Vasishtha Guha, this cave up above Rishikesh. And... Uh, American scientists, it was actually Swami Dhirananda who, after he left Master, became a university professor and was interested in neuroscience. And because he was Indian, he went back to India and he was going to test the brainwaves of yogis in India. So he made it a date with his crew and his machinery to come and see Swami Purushottamananda, who was a very great yogi and well-known. And Purushottamananda said they wanted to come on Tuesday he said, Tuesday's not a convenient day for me. They said, well, it's convenient for us. That's the day we're going to come. He said, okay. So they came and none of their machines worked. They couldn't, they just they were absolutely unable to do anything. So they came back the next day, which was the day the Swami had wanted them to come. And so they hooked him up to the machines. And uh, he didn't have any brainwaves at all. None. Like no brainwaves. And so they became very disconcerted. And so all of a sudden he sort of said to them, oh, you want brainwaves? And so then he just created completely unpredictable, chaotic brainwaves, you know, that just didn't have anything to do with any of their charts or theories. And then after it was over, he just looked at them, and I'm sure he was speaking to Dhirananda. He just looked at them and he said, you know nothing about the mind. <laughs> and that was that. I mean, when the first part, he, just abs- he said, I just absented myself from my body. No brainwaves because there was nobody there. It's just... And, and that's sort of, the yogis just play with us. And partly because our knowledge is ex- from the outside, we, we don't understand how it all fits together. And that's, you know, that scientifically now, and this is what Pura is writing about too, the, the two worlds are beginning to converge because it is interesting how you can start from the outside and find it, you can start from the inside and find it. 
but we are beginning to recognize that these saints who just looked inside are seeing it just as he's saying right here. They've gone to the center of each aspect of creation step by step. See, what Patanjali is also telling us is it's all inside of you. We think we have to go here and learn it, go there and learn it, get this machine, get that machine. And the whole point of all of this is it's inside of you. Everything that you need to know is inside of you. And you can simply cultivate your inner knowing. And that is a very useful fact for us. And it has to be balanced with common sense. But it's also a very useful fact to feel that um, realization. I mean, just the whole, this whole point about go to the center of it. And I was saying this last week. Go to the center of yourself if you want to understand things. Don't always think that I have to line it up out here. If I line it up internally first, then everything else will solve itself. I was looking at Swami's little book, Secrets of Emotional Healing. I just, it's going to be generations before people even have the slightest idea what that man has done. And this is just this little tiny 30 little aphorisms, 31 maybe, Secrets of Emotional Healing. Anxiety, depression, loneliness. Each one, it's just, they're brilliant. And just, if that's your issue, you're looking at it, and it's just, there it is, there's the answer. The secret of overcoming anxiety, he wrote, is to do your best in the moment without concern for the results, because that which is yours will surely come to you, and anything else that you strive to acquire that is not really meant for you will prove evanescent. It's just, there it is. How to deal with anxiety. Oh, do your best in the moment. I mean, now, of course, there has to be a certain faith in God, but, I mean, that's, how many words is that? And just, people write whole books, but there it is. You have to plumb the depth of each one of those because that's how he writes. You know, he writes the top of the mountain and you meditate on what that says and then it takes you all the way, way down deep into things. Because that, that's how he would write. He skips along the top. Perfectly clearly, but the implications of it like this. It's just so many um, parts of that. But, but that's another one. I mean, c- c- coming from this, go into the center of yourself. That's where the answer is always going to be. Go into it correctly, as Patanjali teaches us. Okay. Now... Any questions or comments? Yes. Secrets of emotional healing. Um, if not, you can go on. You can find them on Amazon. Usually, you go on Amazon and you find older used copies of it. It's also Xeroxable because it's such a tiny book. But I think if you just go somewhere, you'll find it. No, also a lot of his books have gone out of print. But yeah, secrets of emotional healing. Yeah, it would, actually. It would be kind of a downer, but we could kind of go through it. <laughs> First we deal with depression, then we deal with anxiety, then we deal with loneliness, then we deal with disappointment, then we deal with discouragement, then we deal... I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> yes, I know, but still. <laughs> Actually, it would be a very good class for somebody else to give because, because Swamiji also matched each one of those qualities with one of his songs, which is the antidote. So you could have a really great time going through each one of those and then singing, 
little Kathy went dancing, went dancing, went dancing. You know, just all the way through. Yes, Tom? Huh? No, we are using the microphone, please. Uh-huh. So we've been talking about Samyama for several weeks now. And, and we've get comfortable, folks, because it's not stopping soon. Okay. It has uh, <laughs> repeatedly dawned on me how Swami, everything he did was Samyama. practice of that. Absolutely. Or perfection, or you know, a deep mm-hmm. understanding of that. Absolutely. And I forgot what I was going to say. No, but that was enough. That was good. I agree with you. Everything that Swami did was the practice of Samyama. And the understanding from the inside out of everything. That was the complete secret of his success. His success with people. I haven't talked that much about people yet because it comes up later. But he understood people from their insides. So, so the whole thing is encouraging us to start practicing and start learning and start realizing that. And it occurs to me that there's just this gap between... Even a class like this where it's really clear and the actual ability to, to live like that. But you go, it's directional, Tom. I mean, you know, I'm, this is comical and, and we have so many more pages of this book in which I just don't know what I'm talking about. So, but even as I flail about in realms of consciousness that I have no personal experience of, I'm learning I'm really learning uh, how to point our, myself and us, I hope, in the right direction. And that's, that's what this is all about, because it's not an all-or-nothing thing. How do you get there? You get there from here. You know, Patanjali got there from here. They all got there from here. And so, therefore, there must be a way to walk in that direction. Yeah, and it's beginning to penetrate. And, I mean, just today when I was, something was happening and I was a little confused, I thought of this. I thought, go to the center of it. And I just, you know, pulled in and relaxed a little, and then I could tell where to go. Yeah. Um, Samyama, number 333. Oh, yes, go right ahead. Just on 330, when he talks about Samyama on the navel plexus, is he at all referring to Navi Kriya? Well, I don't know. He doesn't say. But Navi Kriya could certainly be part of it. I mean, when Navi Kriya, is, Navi Kriya is gathering energy at the navel and then pulling it up to the spiritual eye. It's more about pulling the energy from the lower chakras to here. You're not really contemplating the solar plexus. You're constant. You're pull because what you're doing when you're doing that is you're pulling the energy from the lower three chakras and then lifting it to the upper chakras, more than getting in tune with the solar plexus. At least that's how it seems to me. That's how I would think about it. But a side effect of it could be that. He says, samyama, absorption and attunement with the navel plexus. It doesn't really seem to me what Navikri is. Navikri is moving the energy through it. But I wouldn't swear that they're not related. Okay. Number 333. Okay. Samyama on the light at the crown of the head, the Sahaswara brings the vision of masters and spiritual adepts. And there goes Swami again. You couldn't prove this teaching by me, he says. <laughs> In this, here's Swami. The only vision I ever had was the unexpected appearance of a large green face. Swami often said that. The only vision he ever had was this large green face that just popped into his face one time. I have, um, 
There are different paths to God, and vision has definitely not been mine. So he's so, Swami has nothing to protect. He has nothing to put on. He just, what you see is what you get, and just not the slightest necessity um, to persuade you of anything. Samyama on the light at the crown chakra will no doubt produce the results Patanjali claims. But for doubting meditators, meditation should definitely be focused as a rule at the point between the eyebrows. The opening to the highest center comes from the spiritual eye. If one tries to reach the crown chakra from ordinary ego consciousness at the back of the head in the medulla oblongata, there is a danger of some mental imbalance. Very serious. On the other hand, I used to follow a Tibetan practice of meditating on the thought of my guru seated at the top of my head. I found this practice helpful when seeking his inspiration for my thoughts. So I was thinking about this because people often ask us, because we always teach people to meditate at the spiritual eye, and people think, well, this is the higher chakra, why don't we meditate there? Reminds me of once when someone was wanting to Take the uh, be in the Naya Swami order and they wanted to take the Naya Swami vow, which is not really the right vow. Why? I said, well, it's the highest one. <laughs> Test scores and grades. <laughs> so they'll, you know, you'll be teaching them to meditate the spiritual eye and they say, well, this is the highest chakra, why don't we meditate here? And just, you know, just with that much reason, people will want you to do this. And people do teach you to meditate at the Sahaswara, but... Master really did not. And Swami um, emphasizes it here. But you can see this. We are habituated right here. And I read an interesting little um, tidbit on that too. That one of the reasons where the ego is centered and identified here, we talk about how the sperm and ovum unite and that this is the point, the medulla is the point from which the whole body is created. But Swami adds this extra little thought the soul first identifies with the body right at this point. Because that's, that's where it starts. So when the soul comes in and begins to animate it, this is my body and I'm going to make it, it's right here. And so it's kind of like it's its home, its first resting place, and it just stays there. And from there the whole show is directed. And this shifting, and this is the, you know, this is how Master's teaching and Swamiji's articulation of it just brings clarity to these points that are a little bit subtle otherwise. What is ego? We're having that discussion a great deal of the time, and I believe we had it in this class. You know, it's not really a thing. It's, a, it's an identification with limitation. But we are identified with this physical body. All that it's implied and the limitation, our jiva, has become identified. Well, you, you, the, the natural progression is to identify with a greater reality. Nature doesn't make sudden leaps, is what Swamiji often tells us. We don't just, we don't just sit there and then suddenly we're enlightened. I mean, people tell stories like this. I remember when I was very first on the path, uh, 19 years old, and uh, reading that there were several ways that you could be enlightened. And one was just suddenly. <laughs> one was in your sleep. And the other was after arduous effort. So we were opting for the, one of the first two. <laughs> just suddenly. And so there's this idea of just sudden enlightenment. And Swamiji said, people would read Autobiography of a Yogi and Master made himself seem like such a, 
sort of innocent who just lucked into these things that people were all going over to India and just, you know, standing on the corner, spreading their arms, waiting for a sadhu to come and touch them on the chest and give them cosmic consciousness because Master was touched on the chest and was given cosmic consciousness as if it were that easy. But there is this natural progression which we all experience where we gradually identify with a greater and greater reality and we gradually become less and less bound by all of the characteristics of ego. You know, likes and dislikes, fears, anxieties, depression, loneliness, discouragement, <laughs> you know, all the whole story. It, it affects us less. And affects us less because the energy in our chakras has been shifting. And even if we're not always centered at the spiritual eye, we're not quite, there's not quite such a grip at the medulla. But once the spiritual eye opens as it is explained and we become this is the progression of uh, the understanding of the divine the, 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 the sun the Christ consciousness the, the pure reflection of spirit in all of creation this is what we understand That's what, this is the point of Christ consciousness once we understand progressively that, that that reality is everywhere then we can transcend creation altogether and that's why it happens. Master says, when, you're, when your energy shifts from the medulla to the spiritual eye, the channel to the sahaswara automatically opens. That's his phrase. But if you try to go from ego consciousness and just will yourself right to this reality beyond creation without first working with the reality and spiritualizing the reality you have, that's why Swami says there could be mental imbalance. Because you're just pushing yourself too far from where you are. And it's just an intellectual theory and you're trying to demand it rather than having it open out in front of you. I think it's very helpful because if you teach meditation or try to help people with meditation, that question always comes up. And, And people who are respectable, you know, I just, it's better. Swamiji said he, he made a point of being ignorant about as many other teachers as he could be. Because then when he was asked, he could just say, I don't know because otherwise you might have too much to say. But it, that's, among other things, this is why it's very important to do, do it as the Master says it, because you don't always know what you're just working with. Um, here's an interesting point about Kriya. Um, let me just see where it is. Oh, the, the, and the, pro, the process of Kriya, which is what we're given with, you know, just really takes this, because the concern about mental imbalance is not a small issue for people who are really trying to work with their consciousness, depending on what your samskars are. And a lot of times, mentally unbalanced people are attracted to spiritual places. We used to attract a lot of them to Ananda village. And it was because they were living in a world in which a lot of the normal boundaries had been taken down. And they could tell that we were living in a world in which a lot of the normal boundaries had been taken down, and they thought we were kindred spirits. Um, but we gradually learned, and we had to learn this slowly, that um, people who are ungrounded, really, uh, it's, it does them a great disservice to bring them into our atmosphere because they're ungrounded and they, they, they go off in ways that are really not helpful. So we got very efficient about just realizing we couldn't help you and sending people to a place where they could be helped. But the process of Kriya, especially we could, because we concentrated the spiritual eye, because we have the uh, energization exercises that work appropriately with drawing energy through the medulla, because we understand all this, 
our evolution takes place in a very harmonious way. And we don't have to worry. And, we, and uh, among, again, among the reasons why Master's Path is so suited, we're, we're Catholics and Christian saints without this practice of yoga would, could create very high states of consciousness, but they didn't, they didn't have a system for purifying themselves as they went along. And that's why often, Master said, that's often why they went through such horrible physical problems is because it was just kind of the way that all the um, obstacles of the, in the path of the kundalini, really, were kind of burnt out. Whereas with Kriya, where you're drawing, mag- magnetizing the energy from here, it's really coming up in the right way. Well, I read something about Kriya that is just so fascinating to me that I, I'm having such fun sharing all these little bits of information. Um, this was, Swamiji was talking to a gathering of ministers in the early 80s, Ananda ministers. And we were just beginning to really uh, move out in a big way from Ananda Village. We, we had been, Ananda Village was fairly well established and the, the San Francisco Center was beginning. I was beginning to travel a lot more. The Sacramento Center was established. We were just beginning to, and Swami himself was leaving Ananda Village and teaching around America a lot more. And so there was conversation about, um, you know, what is the right teaching? How much, how much can we really say? How much do we have to compromise and try to reach, quote, reach people where they are and so on? That was the theme. And then Swami started talking about um, when Lahiri Mahashaya was incarnated, and we've all heard this in different contexts, that whatever people asked Lahiri, he always said, do Kriya. And it's sort of famous that that was basically primarily the primary and perhaps even the only advice he ever gave people was do Kriya. And his, his mission was very solidly do Kriya. He had no organization. He didn't teach classes. He didn't write books, although he inspired some books to be written of his teachings. He sat in his living room and he meditated and he did Kriya. And he initiated over time thousands of people. And he did leave a journal. I think I was talking about that book, which has been published. It, and it's very interesting because it's really a book about meditation as the only path and all the things. He kept a journal of all the things that happened, a lot of things that happened in his meditative life. The book is not, was not, for me, easy to read or easy to understand. And it was a little confusing between the person who translated it and edited it. It, was, it wasn't clear. But the essence of what you got is that um, Lahiri left a, a textbook about what happens when you follow his advice and just do a lot of Kriya. It's not about all the things that Master and Swami have written about. Now Swamiji starts talking about how, in, in the meeting, he starts talking about how, of course, all Masters have the same consciousness and all Masters come for the same purpose, which is to help us move closer to the Divine. But they have their own disciples, and as soon as they incarnate, their capacity to share what they have to share immediately becomes limited, not by their consciousness, but by the times in which they have incarnated, and the capacity of those times to receive the message, and the disciples that they have come to serve, and their capacity to receive that message. So that's why Jesus could talk about the Heavenly Father because he was trying to get the Jews to stop thinking of God as a harsh judge 
And if he had tried to go from the harsh judge to the divine mother, um, that would have been too big a leap. He just tried to get them from the judge to the father. It wasn't because it was a male-dominated society or anything like that. It was because that was what he could do. Yogananda comes, and now we've got the father down pretty well, and so now he can talk to us about the mother. It's the needs of the time, the needs of the disciples, like that. Well, he says, Swami's saying, at the time that Lahiri lived, I mean, this was in the 1800s. He was in, as it was in Varanasi, he was in India. I mean, this was a time when devotion to God was the way everybody lived. I mean, it was a, 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 everybody was devoted to God and to the rituals and to the scriptures. It was a completely integrated society between the spiritual and the everyday life. Um, the kind of dream picture that we have when we go to India and we see fragments of it. But that's, that's how we picture it. So he didn't have to say, love God, be devoted to God, you know, understand that life is a spiritual message, you know, re- revere the holy people. He didn't have to say any of that. What he needed to do was to get people more active, um, take, take a more of a, 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 a proactive stance, so to speak, in terms of deepening their relationship to the divine that was all around them. So all he had to say was do Kriya. But it wasn't really like that was a superior message. It was just the right message for that time and for that place. And he said, where Master comes to America, where everybody's thinking is, I can do it myself. And where the whole culture is moving away um, from actually from spiritual from religion altogether, and and religion itself still plays a small role in society and is hardly integrated into what we're doing and is considered to be just this small thing over here. And if in this context, Swami says, in America and Europe, where people are so rational and so um, self-oriented, if you just tell them, "Here's the technique, do it," he said, the result is, and we have seen it. People get Kriya, take it away, never do satsang, never really become disciples, never develop devotion, don't understand right attitude, and get very little from it. So Swamiji also said that Master actually really never talked about meditation and Kriya that much. He worked with people continuously on right attitude. Right attitude of devotion, right attitude of discipleship, you know, right attitude of surrender. Just all of the things that Lahiri didn't have to work with because it was just literally taken in with mother's milk. They're raised on the mythology, they're raised on the Ramayana, on the Mahabharata. It's just part of their world. So all they needed to do was add Kriya into that. In our world, too much emphasis on this technique will do it for you actually takes people in the wrong direction. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I never, I mean, Swami was there and explained it all to us, but I didn't remember it till I saw it again. But it, the, the, the subtlety of what is going on around us, we have to be very humble and really not be too quick to apply our pre-existing ignorance um, to the wisdom that comes to us because in doing so we often, and I mean, I'm amazed with the review that I'm doing now, which is essentially reviewing my whole life. Whoa, I'm, well, the actual word. I think I might want to be discouraged (laughs) if I didn't have the antidote right in front of me. 
just for um, how much I missed. You know, it's just really, it's a, it's a honor to go back. That's what I was saying, just like there's been so much in there that I know Swamiji just, I'm sure he just watched us and just watched us just go right over our heads. But, you know, he was planting the seeds that will gradually be found or sprout. Okay, any comments or thoughts before we take a break? Okay, let's take a break. We are now continuing with wherever we were. So, any other questions or comments about anything we've done? Yes, Tom? Purushottama, a little right. while ago. Swami Purushottama, no, 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 and I also Purushottama mentioned Purushottama from our Ananda. friend Purushottama, yeah. Um, the book Purushottama that, Nanda and our friend right, Purushottama. Yeah. Okay. The book that uh, Purushottama and Biasa wrote about the yugas right. talks a great deal about what you were talking about earlier on just the ability to understand these things and the ability to, you know, how we've just come from Kali Yuga. Right. And I think we get a little confused thinking we're farther into Dwapara Yuga than we are because we're barely out of Kali Yuga. And a lot of that consciousness is still in the ether and in our in our subconsciousness and it affects the way we can hear these things, the way we can use these techniques. Yeah, and our mm, state of realization is also a factor. <laughs> yeah. It was so interesting when I was reading the Yuga book, and it's so interesting the way they explained um, um, from the higher ages how this knowledge was very common and they used it in their everyday lives and yeah. and it's just been lost and when that the, the the that book which is called the yugas if you haven't read it it's an extremely good book all of it is good but the, uh, for my mind the most interesting part is after they've taken you to the apex of uh, uh, the enlightened age and then they bring you back down again because what they do when they bring you back down again is they sort of explain how all this knowledge was lost and how the remnants of it, it's, it's a fascinating, it was a really a brilliant explanation of it. And uh, I remember this from Biasa from years ago, that we look back and consider the advent of written language to be the result of coming from a lower age and finally achieving written language. But from the point of view of the yugas, it was written language was completely unnecessary because there was total telepathic communication. And everybody could hold in their consciousness all knowledge. And when they finally had to write it down, it was, it was a sign of how far they had fallen, not how far they had risen. Which just, that one fact alone, it just makes you realize, oh, we're not seeing this. I remember sitting at... Uh, my sitting on the steps of my little trailer at Ananda Village, living, as I was describing earlier, with just this thin veneer between me and the, and the forest. And at that time I was, mm, let me just try to think, I was just learning about the yugas. And, the, you know, the, the kind of objections that the rational mind raises, where's the stuff? You know, where's the stuff that proves that they really had this high age? But then, of course, I started realizing that the higher the age, the less stuff you need. Because all the stuff you need is because you're not able to work 
in natural harmony with the world around you. Then I thought of the American Indians, which I had also been learning about at that time and appreciating um, the, the aspect of their culture that was really elevated and how they could just live so easily with the natural world. They were in harmony with the animals. They were in harmony with the weather. They just had the... They didn't need a whole bunch of stuff. And it's just the irony of the more elevated the age, the less material evidence there is of it. And all this heavy material stuff that we have, which is we think is such a sign of civilization, is actually a sign of the general, general collapse of it. Although you do have the pyramids and Stonehenge, and so there are... I'm not... My, what I'm saying is not absolute. But still, you can see it. In Swami's book, The Time Tunnel, he has a lot of fun playing with that. And he, when, he, when the children go back and forth in time, and then they go forward in time, and they reach this place where there's no glass in the windows, it's not necessary because the insects and the people all have an agreement. <laughs> and everybody just stays where they're supposed to be, so we don't have to wall ourselves in and wall them out. Everybody just knows where they're supposed to be. And we don't harass each other. <laughs> That's how the American Indians would talk about it when they would hunt. They, they needed to hunt to live and to have their warm robes and so on. So they would pray to the gods who were in charge of the animals and then one animal would separate himself and offer himself. And just, when we started at our farm and you know, all of a sudden we've got critters and that we have to start this whole sort of relationship with the critters and we had a lot, some very fun discussions about how did the American Indians do it. Not that we can immediately by any means, but still, you, you, you set, this mindset is that we have to we're at war with each other. And to a certain extent these days we are because um, we've lost it. I mean, we certainly were at war with the squirrels in our community over the fruit. And we bought this, we're trying all these different ways, we bought this sound thing, you know, like this, and... We put the two sound things up, little speakers. I think they were sound, some kind of things like this. And we put all the bird seed in the front. And we, then we watched the little squirrels pick up the nuts and go look at the sound things. <laughs> you know, it had zero, zero effect on them. <laughs> they were just curious. <laughs> we just watched out the window. Watched them just show that these are useless. Wow, these are useless. <laughs> okay. But someone actually did some praying to the devas and the squirrels began to cooperate with us a little more. But we also got a hawk. We didn't, we didn't import the hawk, but God sent a hawk. And the hawk changed the whole dynamic. Yeah, but that was like, you know, that was really the universe responding. Oh, look, there's a predator. That'll do it. And that's just how the whole cycle works. You don't have to... I remember watching some movie about the sea and the, it was all done from the point of view of, well, I don't even remember who, which the point of view was, but whichever the point of view was, whenever those babies got eaten, it's penguins and seals. It was, it was about the penguins, I believe, and the seals would eat the penguins. And so in the movie, when the seals ate the penguins, you just had this horrible feeling about, you know, just how tragic that was. But of course, if the movie had been about the seals, and the seals got the penguins, we would have cheered for the seals, just, it's, they're all my children. Just depends on which one we're deeply identified with. I mean, that's a very important point to realize. They're all my children. And we just get over on this side. And, but the devas in charge of the seals 
have to work with the devas in charge of the penguins because somebody has to eat somebody. It just has to happen. But what, when you're identified with that particular unit, you feel really stricken when it happens. You know, the elder, I mean, I'm not really advocating these things, but the, the Eskimo societies, when the older person, when f- food was hard, they'd just go out on the ice floe. They'd, you know, they just, one of my friends who was cold all the time was certain she'd been put out on that ice floe. <laughs> she remembered having to go out on that ice floe. She did not take it well. <laughs> Maybe she'd been forced onto the ice floe to just send off. But you know, this is the way it happens. Okay. Anything else? 334. These insights come spontaneously also, all of these insights. This is interesting. Concentrate on the moon, concentrate on the sun, concentrate on the navel, concentrate on the pit of the throat, concentrate on the thyroid. All these insights come spontaneously also to one who has attained inner purity. That's really worth noting. And there's many different ways to come to the same thing. And, and, and Patanjali himself talks about it because you may remember ages ago we were talking about the yamas and the niyamas. About right attitude, purity of consciousness, um, eliminating that which is false, embracing that which is true, and remember all of the things that would happen. And he's basically saying this whole track that we're talking about, which is you can deliberately develop these um, insights. Also, if you just concentrate on inner purity, they will come to you spontaneously. The contemplation of these so-called powers should not be strange to to devotees. They must experience at least glimpses of them in their own lives. And yet, even as I write those words, I remember someone who meditated long hours every day and in consequence became haughty. From haughtiness, sarcasm developed. And from sarcasm, a pleasure in hurting others. Truly, egotism can enter our consciousness through many doors. Patanjali himself warns that using one's spiritual or occult powers may develop pride. We should always feel that God accomplishes everything, even breathing through us. We accomplish nothing ourselves. And so this is where Master put the greatest emphasis on right attitude, also because of the country he was in and what he knew people were like in this country, which is that I can do this and I will do this and I will put in long hours of meditation. Swami tells the story of Jean Haupt, who was one of his brother disciples when Master was there, and how much willpower this man had and how he could meditate. You know, he talked about meditating for like 40 hours at a stretch. Just tremendous willpower. He was, I think he was German. Swami just said, Germany's the only country when you're teaching energization where you don't say, tense as hard as you can. He said, you really can't, because they will. <laughs> and, and with very bad results, you have to be careful. <laughs> so it's a funny comment. But I think Gene had that characteristic. But he, he eventually just became out of tune, because he couldn't grasp the rest of it. And when they were uh, making, pouring the cement for the swimming pool, and they were working for 24 hours without stopping... And Swamiji just felt more and more blissful doing that. But Jean was becoming more and more annoyed because it didn't fit his picture. He wasn't thinking 
What do I know? He was taking his knowledge and imposing it upon Master and, and not uh, attuning himself. That's why Master, when he was there, he also talked, Swamiji said he always talked about attunement to the close disciples. To the public he would talk about more things. But to the disciples he would always talk about attunement. And we have that Sunday reading where he says, so and so left the path, but it need not have happened if he had stayed in tune. So I'm wondering like what to make of all these samyama on X leads to knowledge of Y sort of uh, verses because like what would I practically do with that in my life? I feel like if I'm going to try and get this great attunement with absorption with something, well, when I sit down to meditate, I if I have whatever time I have, I kind of want to spend it focusing on master and getting attuned with master rather than getting attuned with my thyroid, even though that might, in fact, be a very useful thing to do, given the verse about the thyroid there. So I think... This one that we just read sort of says, well, should we even be trying to do all those things or just... Well, then? it's implied here, and I think it, it's implied even by what he says that these insights will come spontaneously also to one who has attained inner purity. So then we have to stop and ask, what is our path about? And even though we're studying Patanjali, and Swami wrote a book about it, the emphasis on our path is not on a lot of formal... I mean, we have a few techniques to work on, but we, you know, there's bazillions of other things that, that Master could have taught us that he didn't, you know, that lead us down a lot of these other very specific paths. So what Patanjali is not describing a path, Patanjali is describing the results of, of your practices. And I think a lot of this is in here. It's like if, if we were trying to live alone in a Himalayan cave and we had very little food and we didn't have to want to bother with getting food, it would be useful to know that we could um, you know, meditate on the pit of the throat and then just not be hungry anymore and be able to live without food. And I... I think that at the, at the hour in which we need these things, they'll come to us. And, and nothing in, in our Master's teaching tells us to pursue them directly. But this is more like... But what I think is the theme of all of this is the one that Swami has pulled out of it. Concentrate at the center of any reality and all knowledge of that reality will be revealed to you. And at such time as you need to understand things that are described here, I think at that moment you'll be led to them. Right now it would be, it just doesn't make any sense for us to go there. The one that strikes us is let's have it come spontaneously through inner purity, which is, I think, part of why Swami says, beats me whether this is true, and gosh, I don't know about this one, because he's also telling us that after 60 years of discipleship, this is not his path. This is not what he's doing. You know, it's just interesting and we could figure it out. But then he draws it back to what we can relate to. Does that answer that? Because it's a good question. I mean, this is how I feel when I pick up this book on Tuesday mornings and say, wow, here we are again. Okay. But Master teaches us, you know, really about purity first, meaning that he even talks to don't seek God for powers, don't seek God for the superficial results that you get, seek him above all for love. And his, the whole path that Master teaches us is not a path of power. It's a path of humility, of purity, of consciousness, of devotion. When I was uh, 
at different times when I was talking about Jyotish and Devi as being uh, the appointed successors of Swamiji, Jyotish being the appointed successor and them serving together. Um, that Swamiji himself once said that the, the uh, spiritual director of Ananda Worldwide and Swami himself said, not even, not even speaking directly about Jyotish, but, you know, what Swami has been in that role, no one could be in that role. Just his, his prodigious creativity, just that alone, writing so many books, doing so many things. And Jyotish, of course, naturally had to, and I've heard them talk about this, you know, they had to figure out uh, how to do it, and he had to figure out how to do it in his own way. But Swamiji epitomized it perfectly when he described that we, ha- we need to have someone in that role because that person epitomizes what it means to be an Ananda devotee. And so it always keeps in front of us what the fruit, what this path looks like. And so you look at Jyotish and you look at Devi and you see what this path looks like. And this path does not look like people who are sitting around doing complicated yogic techniques in order to attain this mastery over this or mastery over that. What you see is humility. You see purity of heart. You see devotion. Um, you see spontaneity. You see naturalness. And, and you see power, but that power comes in in a different way. It's the power of humility, purity of heart, and so on. So it helps us to discern when we're reading a book like this, uh, which uh, Master taught and Swami taught, and all of this, I think, is relevant to us, if not now. It helps us to understand, oh, that's what, that's, but that's what we look like on, on this path. Because you go to other ashrams, and the ideal devotee can look quite different. You know, it can be very austere. It can be very ritual-oriented. could be much more um, technique-oriented. Just many different things. More monastic, less, less spontaneous, less natural. A thousand things. We don't even think about it because it's not our way. But it's, it's not our way because it's very clearly not our way. Swami's made it very clear. But um, there may be yogis among us who, whose reality, we may, they may be with us now, we just don't know, who are able and interested and inclined toward these practices. If you are meditating all the time, not the life that we're given, then you begin to go through realities that I mean, this is what uh, Lahiri's journals are about. He's going through all these realities and understanding all these things that, that's part of why I couldn't really follow the book all that much because that's just not my... But I saw what he was doing. It was like Patanjali. He was describing this state of consciousness and that state of consciousness, which is also what Patanjali showed us, is that we all think, oh, there's samadhi, and I cross over and that's it. But as I quoted uh, Master's letter to Rajasi, you know, keep expanding the boundaries. There's so much more for you to discover. It's not really like you're, you're finished or, or you just travel around in that sphere. I don't know. But I think that's what this is all about. And for us, let's wait to have it come spontaneously. Because this man, and I know who Swami's talking about, you know, he, he really took a meditation is the only thing worth doing attitude. But just like Gene Haupt, he just... Uh, he, didn't, he, he did exactly why Master talks so much about attitude and only some about meditation. 
that this man Swami is referring to here did exactly that. Well, meditation's where it's at, so I will meditate. But he 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 lost the the real thread because of that. So, ready? Anything else? So number three thirty-five. Samyama on the heart brings an understanding of his vrittis or inner tendencies. And then Swami says, psychiatrists use their intellects when trying to understand their patients. True understanding of a person's nature arises from the heart. Science has a firm bias against the heart's feelings, for, as scientists point out, the emotions are usually, in one way or another, biased. The deep, calm feeling of the heart, however, is the only tool we have that we can rely on. It is the seed of consciousness itself. Without it, we would be robots. Samyama on the heart goes deeper than all the superficial waves of emotion. It brings true understanding. Um, and then uh, the next, well, I'll, I'll just stay here for a moment. Intuition is, the next one goes with it, 336. The sattvic intellect and the soul are completely different. Samyama on the distinction between them gives soul understanding. Even the clearest intellect cannot understand the true nature of the soul, for the intellect depends on distinctions, whereas the soul is beyond distinctions. Samyama on this difference intuitively bestows an understanding of the soul. Um, This is just all about the balance between intuitive understanding of things and and reasoning our way to them. And he talks about how the reason just takes things apart and sees all the differences. This one is like that, but unlike this one, and this is what I was thinking. And I I remember how uh, how how you think that if you analyze it enough, you'll understand it better. And I remember having that conversation with Swami in the summer of 1971. And, you know, this is the way. If it's not working, do more of it. (laughs) So I was very, very dry in my approach to the spiritual path, I think is the way I would have to put it. Because I, I, that was my concept of purity. This is why the first time I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I didn't like it. Because it was just all about devotion and about miracles and I thought the way to be on the path was to be very austere and just, you know, this sort of discrimination. But I wasn't really uh, able to discriminate. I was just able to be confused. <laughs> but uh, I could tell that I was confused. And so I said to Swamiji, Sir, I really think I need to improve my powers of analysis. And in, in memory, Swami rose from his chair, but I don't think he actually did. I don't think he actually moved. But he said so emphatically that it felt like he rose from his chair. It felt like he moved toward me. He said, no! <laughs> and this huge force just came, no. And I felt like he took the question and just kind of tried to take it out of the ether. Just no. And then very sweetly he said, develop devotion like that. And I, <laughs> I spent, you know, quite a long time analyzing what he said. Because <laughs> I just, I didn't know what to do with that. Because the mind was so accustomed to just analyzing things and trying to, you know, just figure it out. And I would write these 
sometimes these long letters to him with, you know, if this, then that, if that, then this, if this, then that. You know, he just would like, there was nothing he could do with it because there was no conclusion that could be drawn. You couldn't add up all the pieces. If I do this, then that will happen. If I do that, then this will happen. If I think this way, then that will happen. It didn't, it never made a sum. It just was a, a, a way to live. But to just understand it from the heart without necessarily having any construct around it. Not, not with emotion, because emotion also confuses you. But from just, this is mine, I'm going to do it. You know, and that all the spontaneous things that follow. So it's a very important um, distinction for us to get. And it's, it's not simple. You know, I, I, it's, it's been a particular um, cycle of my own. So I know this one. And, and the, the intellect gets, re- gets really confused. And when you, when you finally begin to recognize how it's not serving you, you know it. But <laughs> until you know it, you just keep thinking about it. <laughs> And true intuition is not so easy. It's not like every feeling that goes through your heart is really true intuition. And a great deal of what people think of as true intuition isn't. So both of these have to work together in just the right way. Merely because it's not analyzed doesn't mean it's more true. (laughs) And merely because you can make sense of it intellectually doesn't mean it's not of the heart. It's, you just have to keep experimenting. And you, you have to just keep falling on your face fairly steadily, repeatedly, until the subtlety of it begins to come clear to you. Okay, I think that will be enough for tonight, unless there's questions or thoughts before we stop. We, 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 we went from 328 to 336.